From Bilski versus Kapos to Mayo versus Prometheus to Myriad versus the Association for Molecular Pathology, high-profile patent cases have become a regular feature of recent sessions of the United States Supreme Court and the current Supreme Court session will see a continuation of this trend. Finnegan Partners' Barbara Rudolph and Erica Arner join us now to discuss the growing presence of intellectual property cases before the court. Erica, let's start with you. What factors can you point to that explain this increase in IP cases? Yeah, it's been very interesting. For a long time after the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit was created, the Supreme Court didn't take an IP case even every year. They left the patent cases to the Federal Circuit and several terms would go by at the Supreme Court before a patent case would be heard. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, we started seeing the court take multiple cases. Now we have, it's typical to have three or four cases per term on patents and other intellectual property issues. I think that has a couple different reasons. One is that we see a lot more coverage of intellectual property, especially patents, in the mainstream press, the growing importance of intellectual property in today's businesses and in today's economy has gotten a lot more notice outside of the IP world. And the Supreme Court is a generalist court. They are looking for cases that are important to large parts of the economy, not just the patent world. And so as the importance of IP has grown, I think that the court's interest in IP cases has grown as well. And another factor is some of the big names, the big companies that have been involved in patent cases in recent years, everyone in Washington carried a BlackBerry at the time their case was underway, the patent case, and it caught the world's attention, really, and certainly the attention of judges and others in Washington. And so as the bigger names and the bigger dollar amount verdicts are coming along in patent cases, we see an increasing notice of them and increasing interest. Barbara, do you think this year's Myriad decision will usher in any noticeable IP-related changes in industries outside of genetics? To some extent, it already has. The Myriad case and the Bilski and Mayo cases have propelled Section 101 issues into the forefront. Myriad is another indication that the Supreme Court doesn't take an overly expansive view of Section 101. So already, companies are undergoing increased scrutiny as to the subject matter eligibility that cuts across all industries. That should have an effect on claim strategies, whether to seek a reissue, as well as challenges to patents that have already issued. So we can expect to see the limits of Myriad tested as accused infringers try to invoke a Section 101 defense more aggressively than they might have in the past. And the Myriad decision seems to require courts to look at the balance between creating incentives for invention versus creating obstacles that unduly impede invention. So preemption issues may play a bigger part in analyzing claim breadth in all sorts of patents. Erica, what are some cases that we should keep an eye on during this session? Well, the court's been asked to consider many different issues in the patent world. It's a really busy term, and so far they've expressed at least preliminary interest in some of those cases by asking the Solicitor General of the U.S. to weigh in on whether or not the court should consider these cases. A couple that may be particularly hot topics are the Akamai case involves the issue of joint infringement, which occurs when a patent claim requires multiple steps to be performed, and rather than a single party performing all of the steps and thereby infringing the claim, two or more parties perform some of the steps 
And in combination, then, all of the claim steps are performed. And the Akamai case involves the issue of what kind of cooperation or collaboration between those multiple parties will cause joint infringement. I think that one may be a case to watch. The court has asked the Solicitor General to provide uh, his views on whether it's an issue that's ripe for Supreme Court review. Another case where that's happened is the Maersk case, where the court has asked the Solicitor General to consider whether they should take that case involving an offer to sell a offshore drilling rig here in the U.S., where the offer, the contract negotiation happened in Scandinavia. And so it's really regarding companies that operate globally when some actions such as the negotiation and contract execution happen overseas, but the performance of delivering the patented product is here in the U.S. And whether that sort of hybrid action, some inside the U.S., some outside the U.S., is still infringing U.S. patent rights, which typically have only jurisdiction in the United States. And then the third one I'll mention is a batch of cases related to patentable subject matter under Section 101. One is called Alice Corporation versus CLS Bank. Another is Ultramercial versus Wild Tangent. And those involve the patent eligibility under Section 101 of the Patent Act of computer-related inventions. And as Barbara said, Section 101, patent eligibility, has been a hot topic in many cases before the court in recent years. And we expect that they may consider one of these computer-related cases as a sort of bookend to these recent discussions of patentable subject matter. And finally, Barbara, are there other IP issues that you could see the court taking an interest in? Well, one interesting issue at the moment is the appellate standard of review for claim construction. Now, that's the process by which the court determines what the patent claims actually mean. The Federal Circuit long ago held in the Cyborg case that claim construction was a matter of law subject to de novo review. But now the Federal Circuit sitting in bank is revisiting that standard in the lighting ballast control case. In that case, the trial court was convinced by expert testimony as to the meaning of a particular term. That term was voltage source means. The Federal Circuit panel disagreed, so the court took it on bank to resolve the question of whether the trial court was entitled to deference, and if so, to what extent. If the Federal Circuit changes or even tweaks that standard, that could affect the ultimate outcome of patent infringement cases in lots of different industries. So it's something that the Supreme Court may decide to weigh in on eventually. Another interesting issue is whether injunctive relief is available for standard essential patents. So some industries adopt technical standards to promote product uniformity. For example, We want all cell phones to be able to make contact with each other no matter who makes them. So owners of patents that cover these adopted standards have to agree to license those patents on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, or what's called FRAND terms, F-R-A-N-D. The topic of the day is whether owners of these standard essential patents are entitled to injunctive relief when they can't agree on FRAND terms with a potential licensee. The theory is that by agreeing to license on FRAND terms, the patentee has essentially conceded that money damages are sufficient relief for infringement. That's what Judge Posner held in the Apple v. Motorola case, which is now pending at the Federal Circuit. Not everybody agrees, so it's another hot topic that may wend its way up to the Supreme Court. 
Finally, another hot topic could be inequitable conduct. We had the Federal Circuit decide the Kingsdown decision many years ago, which was supposed to tighten up the standards for inequitable conduct. But over the years, things have slipped a bit. And so now the question is whether that standard in the Saracens case that was, again, intended to tighten up the inequitable conduct standard, whether the pendulum has swung too far to the other side and that now it's too difficult to establish inequitable conduct. So those are some of the issues that are, I think, interesting and may find their way up to the Supreme Court. And I don't think we've seen the last of Section 101 issues at the court either. I think that will continue to be a hot topic for some time. Our guests have been Barbara Rudolph and Erica Arner, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.